you know, as Christians, we have to understand and, and be real with where we are. That's what we have to see first, individually. And what where our mindset is and what we desire. Airing the Addisons. I think what God is really calling us back to, it's those individual personal revivals in our own lives where we're like, oh Lord, what have we done? We have minimized you. Promoting truth, wisdom, and empowerment. As the church, man, we should be on the forefront of making disciples, of indoctrination in godly things. If we don't train our kids, they will not be able to stand. Uh Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Good afternoon. This is Aaron Addison's here on American Family Radio. And this is Wednesdays with Will, and I'm Will Addison. I'm glad to be here. Glad you're with me listening today. I have um, just a few announcements before I get into what I want to talk about today. Um, First of all, make sure that you email us. If you want to email us, have any comments or any questions at addisons at AFR.net. Addison's, A-D-D-I-S-O-N-S at AFR.net. Also, you can follow us on Facebook. Just search for Airing the Addison's. You can also uh, subscribe to our YouTube page. Just search for Airing the Addison's there. And, and if you would like to watch the broadcast live, you can do so uh, on those too. And also our AFA streaming. Don't forget about that. That's the most important. Uh, you can uh, watch us live there. And so you know that these other entities usually try to cancel you or try to mute you or whatever they try to do. But we have now our AFA streaming. And so that's very, very important that you um, sign up for that. But also um, just want to let you know that we have just a lot lot of things coming up, a lot of things planned, um, praying about a lot of different things. We have some different events that um, Miki and I will be speaking at a matter of fact, on tomorrow we'll be in Florida uh, speaking uh, to a group there. Miki will be addressing critical race theory, uh, and uh, we'll be also ministering at a church that evening. God is doing a lot of things. He's doing a lot of things, and uh, he is desiring to use those who desire to be used. So wherever you are, wherever you are, you know, however God uh, desires to use you, be open to him, be open to him. This is a, a great season to really be in the will of God. It's always great to be in the will of God, but so much is happening now. He, if you're available, he will use you. If you are open to him, if you're open to his will, open to his way, uh, desiring to walk in his will, he will use you because there's so many people who need to hear the things that God is, has, has placed into your heart. Uh, just a great time for ministry. Uh, so today, this is something that has really been impressed upon my heart, and I kind of shared, um, and I say kind of shared, but I shared a lot of this at our church recently. But God had really been impressing upon my heart uh, discipleship. Now, there, there's been a few things that uh, kind of just stuck out to me. One is prayer. One is fasting. One is sharing the gospel. And then also discipleship. And I talked about that before, that if we do those four things, um, and I ministered about that on one of the Wednesday shows, that, man, a a lot of what we see around us would be different. Our homes would be different. Our communities would be different. Our churches would be different. But today I want to I want to kind of hone in on one of those aspects. And that's discipleship, particularly as it uh, plays out in the home. 
particularly in the home, because I believe that if we desire to see revival, that the number one place that that can begin to happen is in our homes. I firmly believe that the pathway to revival in America is for us as Christians to prioritize what's important. You see, there's a lot of things that we can do. There's a lot of activities we can be involved in, but none of that should supersede what we're doing in our homes on a daily basis. Now, this is for grandparents. This is for parents. This is for those who are not yet married, who desire to be married and have a family. Uh, this, this is for children. <laughs> Look, we have a job to do. If Christians, let's just say in America, would have a focus on our homes in the ministry that takes place there, then in our communities, in our cities, in our states, and even in our country, man, we would we would see a change. We would see a change. But when we as the church have, have kind of given in to the system of the world and the way that the world has do, done things, we get the results that we have right now. And so there are some things that we should prioritize. Number one being our relationship with God. That should be number one. Our devotion and our relationship with, with God. Our family, our family structure. You know, what's happening in our homes, uh, the church, the ministry, things that God would want us to do even outside of our homes for his glory. And the work we do, that's very important. And God has given us jobs to do. Uh, and so it's important that we do those things in an excellent manner. And then everything else, all the other things that, that pertains to life, you know, we have to have a priority, a list of priorities. But right now we are dealing with the effects of a nation that has turned from God, a nation whose aim is fulfilling our own desires and our own wants. You know, when I think about where our country ha has, has come from, you know, even from its founding to where we are now, I think of the scripture that talks about that we are lovers of pleasure. We have become lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. It's a feature of the end time. And so that we are operating in, in that way, that there are so many things that we love to do, our desires, what we want, rather than what, what God desires for us to do. And the home, the family is the bedrock of society, but it has been severely eroded. And I'm not speaking about just in the, the world in general. I'm speaking, it's been eroded within the, the Christian context. Our homes has, have, have taken second place to, to careers, you know, to hobbies and things like that. We have to get a hold of, of our families, the first ministry that he's given us. This is in no way to uh, uh, idolize our children and our family. But, man, it's such an important piece to the plan of God that God established the family. And you see how important it is because the enemy fights against God's design marriage and family. In the family context, the goodness of God, the ways of God, the faithfulness of God is supposed to be an on-ramp for the, for the following generation. So speaking of the goodness of God and the, the greatness of God and what he's done, the testimony of God, that is supposed to be an, an on-ramp for our children um, about who God is. We give them 
the proper view of who God is by sharing our testimony, telling them about the goodness of God, what he's done for us, how he saved us. So for generations coming behind us, that's supposed to be an on-wrap to the gospel. But when we fail to put the home in its proper light and we outsource to the world and its devices, the raising up of our children, we get what we see today. We have outsourced the discipleship of our children to schools, to youth pastors and youth groups, you know, to media. Like we don't have time because we're so busy in the pursuit of happiness that we neglect the first ministry. We ne- neglect the children in our homes, our wives and our spouses and our, and our children. God has set it up that we would minister in Jerusalem first, then to Judea, then to the uttermost parts. We start at home, but we've outsourced that because we're so busy now. In this country, we have to ask ourselves, we have to be real and ask ourselves, how did we get from what the founding fathers espoused to where we are now, living in a society where God is mocked? But even to pull it closer from the founding fathers, how did we get from what was called the greatest generation to what we are currently seeing in society now? We have to ask ourselves that question because it's important to, to understand how things over time begin to erode if there's not an intentional handing down of what is valuable. What is valuable to us as, as believers, as Christians, is the gospel. Handing that down, handing the, the legacy of being one who follows hard after God down to our children so that they will share with their children. This is how it goes. But how do we get from point A to point B to where we are now? Uh, there, there's a, a good friend of mine who posted on social media uh, some quotes. Uh, these are from a, from a book called Quotes, Christian Quotes from the Founding Fathers, American Statesman Series by Mary Fairchild. And this is what uh, she says, and then I'm going to get into some of the quotes. She says, why America succeeded and why I believe she is now in a quick downward spiral. Said, no one can deny that many of the founding fathers of the United States of America were men of deep religious convictions based in the Bible and faith in Jesus Christ. And of the 56 men who signed the Declaration of Independence, nearly half, 24, held seminary Bible or Bible school degrees. Very important. The Founding Fathers' quotes on religion will give you an overview of their strong moral, their strong moral and spiritual convictions, uh, which help form the foundations of our nation and our government. And so uh, she gives a list of quotes, and I'm going to read some of them here. And it's amazing. And, And so the point is, how do we get from this in our founding fathers and the, the, what would be the political leaders of that day to what they're talking about in politics today, to what we have now in D.C. and in your state capital. How do we go from there to this? Well, George Washington, the first, George Washington, the first president, 
He says, while we are zealously performing the duties of good citizens and soldiers, we certainly ought not be inattentive to the higher duties of religion. To the distinguished character of patriot, it should be our highest glory to add the more distinguished character of Christian. John Adams, the second U.S. president and signer of the Declaration of Independence, he says, suppose a nation in some distant region should take the Bible for their only law book and every member should regulate his conduct by the precepts there exhibited. Every member would be obliged in conscience uh, to temperance, frugality and industry, to justice, kindness and charity towards his fellow men and to piety, love, and reverence to, toward Almighty God. What a utopia, what a paradise would this region be? <laughs> and then the, the author goes on to say, the general principles on which the fathers achieved independence were the only principles in which that beautiful assembly of young gentlemen could unite. And these principles only could be intended by them in their address or by me in my answer. And what are these general principles? I answer the general principles of Christianity in which all these sects were united and the general principles of English and American liberty. Now I avow, now I will avow, this is Adams speaking uh, in a letter um, on June, June 28, 1813. This is an excerpt from a letter to Thomas Jefferson. He says, now I will avow that I then believe and now believe that those general principles of Christianity are as eternal and immutable as the existence and attributes of God, and that those principles of liberty are as unalterable as human nature and our terrestrial mundane system. Thomas Jefferson, third U.S. president, drafted a sign of the Declaration of Independence. He said, God, who gave us life, gave us liberty. And can the liberties of a nation be thought secure when we have removed their only firm basis? A conviction in the minds of the people that these liberties are of the gift of God? They, that they are not to be violated but with his wrath? Indeed, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just, that his justice cannot sleep forever. This is Aaron Addison's Wednesdays with Will. We're going to continue on talking about a true awakening, discipleship in the home. Stay with us. This is Aaron Addison's here on American Family Radio. 
You're listening to Wednesdays with Will. And that is Let the Church Say Amen. Marvin Winans of the song, I believe, was written by Andre Kraut. Marvin Winans is uh, singing, singing the song. And we're talking about discipleship in the home, the pathway to true revival. The pathway to true revival. And I was reading some of the quotes from founding fathers of the United States of America. And I was asking the question, how do we get from here, the quotes that I have been reading, to where we are now? And I want to read a few more of these quotes. There there are so many that I have, and I can't read them all. Uh, Thomas Jefferson also said in one of his writings, I am a real Christian. That is to say, a disciple of the doctrines of Jesus Christ. Now, just think about this. These would be the politicians of that day, the ones who founded this country. You don't hear that today. How do we get so far away? How do we get so far away? John Hancock, uh, first sign of the Declaration of Independence, resistance to tyranny becomes the Christian and social duty of each individual. Continue steadfast and with a proper sense of your dependence on God. Nobly defend those rights which heaven gave and no man ought to take from us. Hmm. Now, Benjamin Franklin, he wasn't known as being a Christian. Uh, so he wasn't a, a, a true believer. But I just want to read something that he said. And it's amazing because he's not, uh, he, he, he's known to have lived a loose lifestyle. It didn't seem like he was a Christian. Um, all of the founding fathers were not Christians. A good number of them were. But Benjamin Franklin said, um, he said, here's my creed. I believe in one God, the creator of the universe, that he governs it by his providence, that he ought to be worshipped, that the most acceptable service we render to him is in doing good to his other children, that the soul of man is immortal and will be treated with justice in another life, respecting its conduct in this. These I take to be the fundamental points in all sound religion, and I regard them as you do in whatever sect I meet with them. Then he says, as to Jesus of Nazareth, my opinion of of whom you are particularly desire, I think the system of morals and his religion, and he left them to us, is the best the world ever saw or is likely to see. He says, but I apprehend it to uh, I apprehend it has received various corrupting changes. And I have with most of the present dissenters in England, some doubts as to his divinity, though it is a question I do not dogmatize upon, having never studied it and think it needless to busy myself with it now. And when I expect uh, soon an opportunity of knowing the truth with less trouble, I see no harm, however, in its being believed. If that belief has the good consequence, as probably it has, of making his doctrines more respected and more observed, especially as I do not perceive that the Supreme takes it amiss by distinguishing the unbelievers in his government of the world with any particular marks of his displeasure. Now, even in Benjamin Franklin, you know, questioning, as it would seem, the deity of Jesus he was one that still understood that if a nation is going to be successful, it's going to have to be upon the principles of Christianity and the words of the Bible. Now, how do we get from even someone who is not known to be a believer, but has a respect and a reverence for God, you know, in, in his flawed view, but has a, 
respect and reverence and feels that, man, this this nation is only going to be able to stand because of the principles of Christianity to what we have in Washington, D.C. today, to what we have in our schools today, where God is not even accepted. Like God is mocked. God is mocked. Samuel Adams, the signer of Declaration of Independence and father of the American Revolution, he said, and as it is our duty to extend our wishes to the happiness of the great family of man, I conceive that we cannot better express ourselves than by humbly supplicating the supreme ruler of the world that the rod of tyrants uh, may be broken to pieces and the oppressed may be made free again, that wars may cease in all the earth and that the confusions that are and have been among nations may be overruled by promoting and speedily bringing on that holy and happy period when the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ may be uh, everywhere established and all people everywhere willingly bow to the scepter of him who is Prince of Peace. Now listen, I have so many more and I'm not going to read all these. I'm just trying to make a point that these were the things that the founders and the prominent men of that time were saying. How do we get from that to where we are now? Because the truth of the matter is, even in our politics today, the people who are in office, they sat at somebody's table growing up. They had, most of them had, you know, a two-parent home. Some didn't. So, and I would believe that a lot of people, their parents probably professed to be Christians. So what happened when you get to generations down the line that, man, the kind of stuff that we're seeing Today is out there. And then when you read the quotes of the founding fathers, man, you see a totally different uh, morality. What's going on? Now, am I saying that the founding fathers were perfect? No, not saying that at all. But there is a clear difference in the thought pattern and what they thought would make a great country than what we're seeing today. You cannot argue that. So I believe in my view, there were three big events. Now, there are more events than, than, than this, but there are three big events that really marked the turning points in America. Number one, the first event, I would say different wars that took place and the Industrial Revolution. And I know there were different uh, Industrial Revolutions that took place, I think three different ones, but from 1740 to 1840, the steam engine, the age of, of science and mass production, and the rise of digital technology essentially changed the family structure. It went from agricultural, where mom and dad were working together as a family with the children. It went from families having trades and working uh, family businesses to the father being taken away to work and the mother being the sole keeper of the home with the children. Um, or in wartime, the men went away to fight. And in some instances, the women worked the jobs the men left behind. Now, the Industrial Revolution made our country different. It made it richer and more powerful. Um, but the family structure did suffer. We gained the world, but lost our souls. Now, I would say this. As far as the Christians in America at this time, we should not have lost our families, even with all of this happening. Even during the Industrial Revolution, we have the word of God. 
We have the commandments of God that tell us how we ought to interact with our children and how the gospel should be handed down generation to generation. We shouldn't have been taken away, you know, in our hearts and our minds to, to, to run after careers and to see, you know, how things could, could change and we can pursue happiness now, you know, and we can get more money. Man, but that began to change. So much so now that there, there is a feeling of that uh, both parents need to work. There's no way that one parent can't work. I think we need to take a hard look at our homes and, and see if we've lost those things. Now, if, if you do have both parents working, because I work, Miki worked, at the same time, we feel like we are, by God's grace, making efforts to handle our home, to disciple our children. That has to be first and foremost. We can't give that up in exchange for careers. The second thing that happened was the free love and sexual revolution, the 60s, 70s. Uh, the free love came to imply a sexually active lifestyle with many casual sex partners and little or no commitment. And this is uh, really when a generation and successive generations became open to sexual deviancy more and more. The things that Alfred Kinsey, a sex researcher and sexologist, and uh, John Money, who's a sexologist uh, and a researcher, who really got into the whole gender identity thing, when they were experimenting, it was far before uh, the time of the sexual revolution, but their ideas the ideas passed on to that, that generation to where, you know, keep your mind open. You can do whatever you want. That generation w- was open to the, those thoughts and those things, you know, about homosexuality and then, you know, sexual deviancy. Because not all the, 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 the people during the time of Kinsey and, and Money uh, gave heed to what they were saying. A lot of people looked at them like, man, you guys are outside of the box. Like, what are you guys talking about? But over time, as culture softened and things opened up, these same types of, of, of uh, thought patterns became prevalent to now what we have. All the talk is about gender identity and, 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 and transgenderism and homosexuality. It's like prevalent now. It wasn't always like this. But these things over time, if we don't grab a hold to it, if that the gospel is not adequately being uh, preached, man, it gains ground and, and, and it continues to grow. Where was the church when all of this was happening? What were we doing? And lastly, out of the three things was the indoctrination in our schools, our colleges and universities. Guys like John Dewey, an American philosopher and educator who was a founder of the uh, philosophical movement known as pragmatism, a pioneer in functional psychology and a leader of the progressive movement in education in the United States. They have succeeded in creating generations of children, uh, some of our children, in their own likeness and in their image. That's what they wanted to do. And they were moving and working behind the scenes on the ground almost to make changes. And now what we see is that we're living in a manifestation of the things that they were trying to do back then. They have created within our homes allies for their causes and advocates for evil. 
This only gained footing among uh, Christian homes because there was a dropping of the baton. This was not supposed to be something that would penetrate the Christian home because we have the scriptures. And I'm going to we're going to get into that uh, with the rest of the time that I have. I want to show you what the Bible says about how generations of believers are to act. But this lack of discipleship in the homes, uh, plus the outsourcing of discipleship to public schools and youth groups so that we can pursue happiness, has served to erode this nation. How did we get from what the founding fathers uh, um, said and what they believe to what we have right now? I have three clips I wanted to play. How did we get from there to this? Listen to this. So I was a seventh grade civics uh, teacher, government teacher, and she is an elementary school teacher. What year did we get our independence? <laughs> 17 something. We're teachers. I actually don't teach what's in our curriculum. I'm teaching children social studies that's not in our curriculum, teaching them things about how to be an anti-racist. I taught them about protesting. I taught them about Black Lives Matter. All right. She didn't even know when the country was founded. 17 something. And then... And she's a teacher. And she's like, I don't teach the, the normal stuff. I, I teach anti-racism. I teach, man, look, our children don't stand a chance with people like this at the helm. Like, this is what we are outsourcing our children to if you have them in these government schools. It's crazy. It's crazy. But we have to take a hard look at that and say, man, what, what results will we get when we put our children into this type of stuff? And what about this one? I see teaching as a very political act. When we are engaging with our students, whether it's on social justice issues or multicultural issues or culturally relevant teaching, I see that as foundational to all learning. So politics is political for her. She, she's a teacher. So she's going in with an agenda to indoctrinate your child. Man, Christian, I'm talking to Christians. We have to wake up. We have to understand what's at stake and what's going on. We have to understand what's happening. We have to understand what's happening. This is, these are just a couple examples of what's happening even on a daily basis in the public schools and even on social media, on TikTok and on all these different things. Indoctrination is, is coming from all angles. But in the Christian home, it should not be able to penetrate. We have to not, we have to do better. We can't be lazy when it comes down to our homes. Husbands, loving our wives, washing our wives with the water of the word, raising up our children. We can't be lazy about these things. Now, when we get back, I'm going to go right into Psalm 78. And it's only a few verses I'm going to talk about. This is a, it's a long song, but I'm going to only talk about eight verses. But I want to show with the commandment to those who are Yahweh followers, what we are supposed to be doing so that we don't uh, 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 pat, lack passing down what our children need. If we, if we don't do what God has called for us to do in his word, we drop the ball and there's gaps within the generations. They miss something and it's on our watch. The reason that we're here right now, because generations before us, they dropped the ball in something. I'm talking about Christians didn't pass things down and got caught up in making it in the world. This is Aaron Addison's here on American Family Radio, Wednesdays with Will. 
be back right after this. I believe God sent the saints around the world to tell the people about his name. That his son was slain so that we could be forgiven. There's eternal life for believing and repenting. With that in mind, I'm called to go. With that in mind, I'm called to go. This is Aaron Addison's here on American Family Radio. You listen to Wednesdays with Will, and we're talking about discipleship in the home. Uh, we were just exploring how you have a country that goes from uh, what was stated by the founding fathers to where we have today. Uh, I want to look at the scriptures um, and our time remaining. I want to make sure that we see from the Bible because that uh, that's our straight straight edge, and that's our note that we constantly sing on this show that we can go to the scripture to find everything that we need pertaining to life and godliness. And I believe we get here because generations before us failed to pass on the things of God in a robust way. Remember, it only takes one generation. It only takes one. And like I said before, the people that uh, make laws today, they sat at someone's dinner table at one time. They were raised by parents who probably professed to be Christians, but maybe they didn't value the family uh, but value more making it in this world and pursuing happiness. It just takes one generation to drop the ball for generations coming behind them to consistently decline. In Judges chapter 2, verse 6 through 10, it says, When Joshua had dismissed the people, the sons of Israel went each to his inheritance to possess the land. The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who survived Joshua who had seen all the great work of the Lord, which had, uh, he had done for Israel. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the territory of his inheritance in Timnath, Heraz, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gash. All that generation also were gathered to their fathers, and there arose another generation after them, who did not know the Lord, nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. How does that happen? With all that God did for Israel, how does another generation arise that don't know the Lord? We're talking Red Sea. We're talking the sun standing still so that they can win the battle. We're talking passing through the Jordan, right? We're talking water from a rock. We're talking manna from heaven. We're talking a light by night and a pillar of cloud by day. How do you lose that in a generation? Well, I love this scripture in Romans uh, chapter 15, verse 4, and we're going to explore this for whatever was written in earlier times were, were written for our instruction so that through perseverance and encouragement of the scriptures, we might gain hope or we might have hope. So we look back at the scriptures and how our, our brothers and sisters in Israel, the children of Israel, did things. And, and we can learn from their mistakes because we, we are just like them. So Psalm 78 is instructive for all Christ followers today. And we are going to look at verse 1 through 8. And I just pray that God would open our eyes as we, as we look at this. So Psalm 78 is a mascal of Asaph. A mascal, M-A-S-K-I-L. A mascal is a, con a contemplative psalm, a psalm for teaching, a psalm of instruction, a psalm of wisdom. So who was Asap? 
ASAP, uh, he was a chief musician, a singer-songwriter, but he also was a prophet. He is the ancestor of the sons of ASAP, one of the great family guilds of temple musicians. And there's other there's scriptures that talk about ASAP, how he was appointed the chief, and he did uh, he, he wrote songs with David. You know, he he wrote songs. There was ASAP. There was Korah. There was David. Uh, there were some others. There were some anonymous psalms that were, were written. But ASAP wrote a bunch of them. I'm just going to move on. Uh, it, it, in um, Second Chronicles, you know, uh, in, 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 with King Hezekiah, there's a scripture that says, Moreover, King Hezekiah and the officials ordered the Levites to sing praises to the Lord with the words of David and ASAP the seer. So even after these guys were gone, they were still singing the songs of David. They're still singing the songs of Asaph. Why? Because they were instructive. They were songs of wisdom. This masculine probably was one that was sung pretty often. So they sang the, praise, the praises with joy and bow down and worship. So let's look at Psalm 78 and then go verse 1 through 4. So it says in Psalm 78, that Asap starts it off by saying, hey, listen, incline your ear, incline your ear. He's getting the, uh, the attention of the people because there's something important that's about to be said, and he wants them all to listen, right? Listen, O oh my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old which we have heard and known and our fathers have told us and we would not conceal them from their children. All right. Asaph starts off the psalm urging the people to listen, to give ear to what he's about to say. Remember, Asaph was, uh, wasn't only a songwriter and a musician. He was a prophet, highly esteemed with the people. So this psalm is the psalm of wisdom. Great attentiveness is needed. The people ought to hear this. Asaph also expresses here that he will not be saying anything to the people uh, uh, that's new, but things they have heard from who? Their fathers. Wow. And that's not a mistake. That is fathers. These are things they have already heard from their fathers. And I encourage you that you read um, Psalm 78, the whole chapter, because it goes into the history of Israel and how they turned away from God and how God was faithful and brought them back. But he said, I'm not going to tell you anything new. These are things that we've heard from our fathers. Many times in Israel's history, the fathers are charged to put into remembrance what the Lord had done on their behalf, that they would always put their trust and hope in God. Asaph right here is carrying that, this mantle of passing down God's goodness to the people and is encouraging them to keep the generational blessing going. So he starts off saying, man, this is stuff that we've heard from our fathers. This is what I've heard from my father. This is something that we as parents, as grandparents, we have to like meditate on. Man, how can I pass down the goodness of God to my children, my grandchildren? Spurgeon, uh, Charles Spurgeon, he once said, the more, the more of parental teaching, the better. Ministers and Sabbath school teachers were never meant to be substitutes for mother's tears and father's prayers. The more a parental teaching, the better. Amen. 
So Asaph knew the things he would be reminding them of in this massacre were things told to them um, and his his generation by his father. So right off the bat, there are three things that Asaph wants to put the people in remembrance of. Number one, the praises of the Lord, that the people's posture uh, would be that of a posture of praise and adoration towards God. Praise towards God. Number two, God's strength. That God is the God of strength and power, and by his mighty hand, he delivered them from their enemies. They had to remember this because going forward, they will encounter things, but they had to remember the goodness of God, his strength, his mighty hand. And number three, his wonderful works. God performed miracles on behalf of his people. God showed up to fight for Israel and even caused wonders to be done in the earth on their behalf. Like I said before, the Red Sea, the sun standing still, all these things were a testimony of the goodness of God. So I'll read it again. Listen, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and, and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not conceal them from their children. But tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wondrous works that he has done. Those things are to be passed down to our children. Even in our lives, we can look back on things that God has done and we pass down the goodness of God that I was in this situation. And this is how God brought me out. This was to be a lasting memory for the people. This psalm emphasizes the strength and the wonderful works of God, not the strength or the wonderful works of his people. This psalm is remarkably honest about the failings of God's people. The supreme quality of this psalm is that throughout all its measures, over against the repeated failure of his people, God's persistent patience is set forth in bold relief. Then we get down to verse 5 through 8. For he established a testimony in Jacob. And appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children, that the generation to come might know even the children yet to be born, that they may rise, arise and tell them to their children, that they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its heart and whose spirit was not Faithful to God. Okay, so Asaph points out here uh, to the giving of the law. That made them a distinct people. The precious word of God was given to God's people. And this was uh, special and significant. Uh, and in turn, the fathers were commanded to teach the word of God to their children. Asaph takes the people of Israel back to the Ten Commandments. The law that was given. Remember how the commandments um, are described in Exodus. Exodus chapter 31, verse 18. When he has uh, finished speaking with him upon Mount Sinai, he gave Moses the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written by the finger of God. Tablets of stone written by the fingers of God. They were a testimony and the law. And the commandment starts off not with commandments, but with a testimony of who God is. Right? It starts off like this. Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt 
out of the house of slavery. The Ten Commandments, it start off with saying and laying out who God is. So like Asaph is saying, he gave his people a testimony of who God was and the law. He gave them the commandments. This set them apart from all other people. So he's hearkening back to that, and he's reminding them that you are a people unto God. And God appointed a law in Israel, um, a testimony in Jacob, and a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children. Now, it's, it's awesome to see here, uh, this was to be handed down generationally. The next generation would get it, and even the ones not yet born. We see in, this, in these verses at least five generations. First, the fathers, which he commanded our fathers. Then it says that they should teach them to their children, right? That the generation to come might know. So that's a generation to come. That's another, another one. Even the, the children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children. Five generations of blessing, of commanding the blessing of the Lord going down the line. So the, co- the communication uh, of the accurate picture of God is to the, the, is to the parent is for the purpose of confidence for the children. So we have this as parents so that the children would have confidence in the God that we serve. Learning to trust God for themselves by seeing how their parents trusted God and God showed up on their behalf. This is not the job of the school system. It's not the job of youth groups or co-ops. This is the job of parents. This is to happen within the family context, that the goodness of God is passed down to our children, first in the home. You know, I, I, I look back at, at, at Psalm chapter 1. This is a psalm that we taught to our big three, and now I'm teaching to the little ones. That how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way on the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He would be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields his fruit in the season and his leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. I teach this to my sons, that man, you do not want to counsel with the wicked. Or stand in the path of sinners. Or sit in the seat of scoffers. We can do this in our homes. My son will ask me, what is a scoffer, dad? And I'm able to tell him. He was, he was, I would say, hey, what kind of man do you want to be? He said, dad, I want to be a blessed man. This is Nathaniel, eight years old. I want to be a blessed man. I don't want to be the wicked man. This is what we are supposed to be doing in our homes. This is our job, men to instruct our sons and our daughters on the ways of the Lord. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord with your heart, all your heart, with all your, your soul and with your mind. These words what I am commanding to you shall be on your heart. They should be in our hearts first. Then we shall teach them diligently to our sons and shall talk to them when we sit in our house, when we walk by the way, and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontless on your forehead. You shall write them on your doorposts of your house and on your gates. This is our job. All day, we are placing before our children the goodness of God. 
We are giving them the proper view of the God that we serve. Let's do it. This has been Aaron Addison's Discipleship in the Home. We'll be back tomorrow, but until then, God bless.